Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Hi, Janice. Are you there? Hi. I am. Thanks for joining us. Um, To get started, can you do a brief introduction of yourself for our listeners? Sure. My name is Janice Chan, and I am a BCBA working in sunny, well, right now not sunny, but normally sunny San Diego. Um, And I um, wear a few hats. My main job is I um, train uh, teachers, mostly special ed teachers, but also some general ed teachers in a classroom modification of pivotal response teaching called CPRT, Classroom Pivotal Response Teaching. And um, another hat I wear is I um, am a professor at San Diego State University, um, where I, I'm currently teaching the ABA course, um, but I've also taught a course on um, autism as well as a course um, that's a prerequisite to the early childhood special ed program. So a few different um, ways I, I'm working in the field, but yeah, predominantly I um, train teachers in CPRT. Can you explain for our listeners what, how you would describe classroom pivotal response training um, and, and what, what makes it unique to being in the classroom? Absolutely. So a little bit about the history of CPRT is that um, I'm sure many of you have heard um, of the intervention called PRT, pivotal response training. And if you haven't, um, it's one of the naturalistic um, behavioral strategies. Um, the, CPRT, the classroom version of PRT, was um, adapted from PRT um, to kind of meet the different demands that teachers face. So what we found out, um, studies here in Southern California found out that um, over 70% of teachers were using bits and pieces of PRT um, in their classroom settings um, and kind of modifying the intervention to best meet their needs. You know, teachers were facing different things than in-home therapists and parents were facing. Um, For example, teachers are legally required to um, target IEP goals. Teachers have to take data that maybe parents don't have to take such intense data for. Um, You know, there's just different um, restrictions and uh, distractions and guidelines. Um, Teachers have to follow standards. And so all of these things were kind of taken into consideration in the development of CPRT. So we have um, a basis of um, like the science behind CPRT is kind of built upon the science that has developed um, PRT, um, but um, systematically has been modified to meet the demands that teachers face in their classrooms. Um, So a lot of what we do is teach teachers how to use um, this intervention, which has previously been used mostly in one-on-one environments into group settings, um, whether it be small groups or large groups, like whole classroom type activities. Um, Myself, I have a background in elementary education and in being in public schools, and the blending of behavior analysis into traditional education, can there can be a lot of barriers to that. Right. you know, there's a lot of good strategies like um, creating uh, programs or protocols, right, providing task analysis, giving access to ongoing, you know, consultation. And I'm sure your experiences, you could yield even more examples. But could you mind speaking to us about some of the – you mentioned some of the restrictions, but what are some of the, the other kind of considerations when working in, in public schools? 
for a big school, one. I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, non-public schools too, or private schools as well. We we've kind of run the gamut, but most of our study participants are um, public school teachers. A big thing that we actually faced was we actually ran um, a three-year randomized controlled trial of CPRT to test the effectiveness of it and found that it was helpful to, um, you know, for student gains. Uh, however, uh, what we saw was that there wasn't much follow-up, um, all three with teachers as far as their sustainability of their use of the intervention. Um, so what basically um, our training protocol it, it involves not only training teachers didactically or like more lecture style, but also um, coaching. And so we provide very intensive one-on-one -on -one coaching with each of the teachers that participate in our studies. And essentially what we found is that once that coaching stopped, teachers stopped using CPRT. Um, and so what we found was that one of the barriers basically was there wasn't enough support from school leadership in order to um, sustain the use of CPRT. I mean, there could be a number of other reasons why they um, they didn't sustain. Maybe they didn't find it rewarding themselves to use it. It was too difficult. There could be all those factors. But what we're really looking at now is the role of leadership, um, school leadership, in um, providing opportunities for not only providing like opportunities and attitudes towards like the use of evidence-based practices in schools but also um, the role that leaders potentially have to reward reinforce recognize um, teachers for utilizing evidence-based practices such as CPRT in their classrooms. So taking behavior analysis into our interactions with one another it sounds very kind of organizationally structured Right. Um, are you finding any particular resources or um, approaches that, you know, maybe other people could go to if they're interested in, in this as well? Um, to be honest, I the role that I play in our study is a little bit more related to the teacher level. I don't, I'm not super involved in the leadership level, so I unfortunately don't have, like, direct resources um, with regards to that. Um, I've definitely been doing more reading on my own, just my own interest um, as the study kind of progresses about OBM, organizational behavior management. But um, besides that, like our study has developed, um, they, they, they do some goal setting with the leadership team in, in the schools. Um, but past that, I, I'm not exactly um, familiar with exactly what they do or resources that they utilize in order to um, help the leaders in that way unfortunately. But I'm happy to connect you if people want to contact me and connect me. Um, I can connect them to the sources um, that our our team utilizes. Excellent. Thank you for that offer and for that explanation. Can you tell us more about your study? And you talk a lot about the teacher role. Um, so any sort of um, strategies or um, maybe just lessons learned uh, kinds of things, or maybe you're not at that point with your study. So if you could just let us know, that would be really um, helpful to our listeners. Yeah, so my role on our study is that I'm the lead trainer on our on our research studies. Um, so that means that I um, have a caseload of teachers that I work with um, individually, as well as I'm responsible for training our research staff. Um, our study is a multi-site study, so we have trainers located in Sacramento, 
Los Angeles and San Diego. So we're um, constantly telecommuting with one another um, to build capacity and, and um, you know, keep uh, reliability high as far as how we're scoring teachers' fidelity of implementation. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of my role. Um, it's been really fun. I love my job. Um, most of the time I spend actually in the field working directly with teachers. Um, so what we do is I um, observe their choice of a lesson that they, um, they decide they want to use CPRT in a specific lesson, and then I get to observe them and, and brainstorm with them on how to improve on their implementation. So um, it's really fun. I, I get to be creative and, and, and brainstorm with teachers, which I really enjoy doing. When I was in a consulting capacity, sometimes I would give recommendations or input or advice, and people would say, oh, my gosh, that's, you know, a brilliant idea. No, sometimes they wouldn't. <laughs> but I would say, you know, it's, I'm not really a genius. I'm kind of a thief, meaning that I get these great ideas because I get to go and see so many different amazing teachers totally. and types of instruction. Um, so that was always something I found really rewarding and gave me this really big knowledge base of potential um, ideas. When you talk about classroom pivotal response training, you had described it as, you know, naturalistic behavior, um, behavior analytic approach. How would that differ um, when we are talking about traditional kind of discrete trial teaching? Like, how, how would that look different on a one-to-one? -one? Mm -hmm. That's one of my questions. And then a follow-up question would be when you describe classroom PRT in a, or maybe some of those procedures in a smaller one-on-one -on -one situation, what's the difference when you are then um, applying it to small groups or to larger groups? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest difference between a more um, discrete trial type approach is that there is a big focus on motivation and embedding motivating learning opportunities into the lesson. And so a lot of what I do and a lot of what teachers, um, like the strategy or component of CPRT that really hits home with a lot of teachers is um, the ability to use a student's preferences towards their learning. So, um, for example, let's say a, a teacher is trying to teach counting. Um, we might encourage the teacher to utilize a preference assessment to determine what um, the student likes at an individual level and utilize those things to teach counting. So let's say the preference assessment um, says that the student's favorite thing is Minecraft. Anything related to Minecraft, the student it is really, um, you know, really prefers. And so if the teacher teaches counting using Minecraft figurines or even printed out pictures of Minecraft, the idea behind CPRT is that that produces or that allows for a higher level of motivation throughout the activity. And hopefully with a higher level of motivation, the student will attend longer and learn faster. Um, so does that answer your first question? It does because you're talking about okay. really embedding the, right. the the preferred items or the reinforcers potentially. I remember yeah. presenting with an adult um, with autism, Stephen Shore, and he had said once when he was younger, he said, you know, my teacher would tell me when you're done learning, you can go read about airplanes because he was saying he really enjoyed reading about airplanes. He mm -hmm. said, but then he had a teacher who used to teach him multiplication. So you have how many rows on an airplane, how many people in each row. Yep. And instead of it being something he was, like, earning, it was just embedded into his instruction. So right. mm -hmm. really kind of connect to what you're saying there. 
Yeah. And then how does that, so you, I guess you kind of answered the second question too, which is how do you then take that into a group instruction and how would a teacher be able to, to do that and differentiate with multiple learners at the same time? Yeah, that's the hard part. Um, whether you're trying to work on preferred materials or not, it's, it's difficult to differentiate with a group of students. Um, one thing we found is that it doesn't necessarily have to be a student's like absolute individually preferred favorite interests. It could just be more exciting in general. Like um, pretty much what we do is we compare it to what we would typically use to teach a child, which would be like flashcards or worksheets or something like that. And it, generally speaking, if it's more exciting than that, it, it increases in the level of motivation. It may not be as motivating as if I were able to incorporate the airplanes into the motivation, into the multiplication assignment, but um, it would be more fun to multiply using Legos, whether I like Legos or not, even if I loved airplanes. Legos is more fun to multiply with than a flashcard would be. So I can still choose something that would be fun. As a teacher now, I can choose something, um, material that would be fun for the student, but doesn't necessarily have to follow their individual preferences. Um, so that's kind of the difference. That, that way, you can, as a teacher, choose a material that you feel like all of your students will generally like, um, and there usually is something, um, unless the, the group is um, a little bit more impacted, then there might you might run into a little bit more difficulty with the group um, preference or like a you know a general thing that all of the students like. But most of the time, you'll you should be able to find something that you know generally kids that age or that developmental level enjoy and it's okay to choose those things too as the preferences that you incorporate into the lesson. I think a lot of that makes sense, right? Sometimes just the novelty or do using different modalities with instruction. And then of Absolutely. course if you can get that more specific interest, then I'm gonna perk up more when I hear a professor who's you know, or somebody who's mentioning, you know, be a skinner for me. If I'm somewhere and somebody says that name like my ears are gonna perk up. Somebody else yeah. maybe not so much, you know. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a really, that's a really important piece. At least the teacher part of me kind of connects the most to that because you want to differentiate your learning. You want to be really effective. You want to use the latest and greatest techniques, but you also just feel sometimes like you're juggling so many different balls at the same time. Right. Um, like today, I actually just saw a teacher this morning. She was, she was utilizing Legos for teaching math and, she had half of her group was working on multiplication and half of her group was working on fractions and she would give you know she would give cues to each half of the group based on their response so she would give you know the multiplication kids you know two legos one that was like a two by four or two two by fours and say what's two times eight right um and then she would give the other students like three black Legos and four yellow Legos and say, what is the fraction of yellow Legos? So she differentiated in that way. Um, so that's one way I've seen a teacher effectively still utilizing preferences, um, incorporating preferences into the lesson, but still able to differentiate based on the student's IEP goals or developmental level. You see, sometimes I think the most creativity in the classrooms, and I think that teachers are both educators and artists. Um, yeah, you, totally. 
do you have other features or tendencies, characteristics that you see sometimes that you walk into a classroom and you're like, hey, this is somebody who's going to be really great to work with, or this is a teacher who I think is going to really excel in implementation? And if so, what are those characteristics that you notice? Um, I think that's actually something that we're um, we might be trying to pull out, but um, I think anecdotally I can say that um, flexibility is a big thing. A big thing with PRT and CPRT is being able to follow a child's lead and adjust based on how you feel like the kid is doing, um, whether that means interspersing more easy tasks so that um, the overall, you know, level of difficulty for the activity is reduced um, or, um, or you know, reading the child's nonverbal cues as to when they might be all done with the, the project or the lesson and ending it before they get frustrated. Um, so I think you need to be in tune, like you need to have good planning because you need to be able to use all of the components in order to have high fidelity but you need to be flexible and adjust based on how you're reading the child's, um, you know, how, how the child's interests are changing throughout the activity or how the child needs you to adjust the way that you're delivering the cues. So flexibility, I think, is a big one. If teachers are a little bit too rigid, um, you know, I have to follow the lesson plan that I wrote, then they run into a little bit more difficulty. Yeah. Um, well, I can kind of relate to that, right? Being rule yeah. follower at times and totally <laughs> have my plan for how I want things to go. Um, but it is that ability to adapt to change that's going to make us be able to go with the flow a little bit more. So I think that's a skill that um, a lot of us can work on and that we're constantly work on, right? Is how to have a plan, how to be structured, um, but how to be flexible. And I think it comes down, you've mentioned this a lot to support and what that support looks like and what's the philosophy of, you know, what's the buy-in. So all of those variables, I'm sure, are going to play some role. And so we look forward to seeing, you know, the additional insight that your research offers. Um, before we end the call today, is there any, um, any resource, recommendation, website, project that you're working on that you want to share with listeners? Yeah, well, we have um, – we're working on a second edition for um, – our CPRT manual. Um, the original one is available on Amazon. I think it's just called Classroom Pivotal Response Teaching. Um, and then, we're, like I said, we're working on a second edition for that. So that's to come in the next, I don't know, year. It's probably going to be a little bit of a process. But we do have a website. Um, classroomprt.org is our website. And there's actually a lot of really great free resources on that website, like one pagers about each one of the components. Um, so that you could kind of walk away with a visual um, infographic type um, paper about each of the components of PRT, um, as well as some data sheets. So um, again, to that point of teachers struggling to use CPRT in group settings, we actually have data sheets available um, in which you could um, take data during a group activity, because we know that most teachers, that's the setting they have to teach in. Um, so there is... Um, a number of different uh, uh, data forms on our website as well that are available free for download. So I would recommend looking at that um, and then our new edition of the book when that comes out. We'll be sure to keep everybody posted and I'll share some of those links um, on Behavior Babes. Perfect. Yeah, maybe some on the website as well. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. I, I feel like we were brief, and I have so many more questions, so we'll definitely <laughs> invite you back for another episode in the future. Perfect. I would love that. Wonderful. Well, appreciate your time, and for anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, you can visit www.behaviorbabe.com. <laughs>